The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1773, she became the first person of African descent to publish a book of poems in the English language. And she literally wrote her way to freedom, as her success and fame as a poet inspired her owners to free her. Yes, she was a slave, as her name tells us. Her first name, Phyllis, was the name of the ship she traveled on from Africa to Massachusetts, while her last name, Wheatley, was the name of the family who purchased her. Phyllis Wheatley had an extraordinary life, six years in Africa, a passage on a slave ship, 12 years in Boston, and the astonishing education and her development as a poet. She was lauded by Voltaire and Gibbon and Ben Franklin. She exchanged admiring letters with George Washington, and she exposed some of Thomas Jefferson's highest ideals and lowest shortcomings. She faced a trial by disbelievers with a jury composed of many of the leading white men of the day, names familiar to us even now. She's lauded by many, her accomplishments essential to the understanding of blacks in America. Schools are named after her. And yet, in the words of Henry Louis Gates Jr., she wrote what has been the most reviled poem in African-American literature. How did this happen? What does any of it mean? And what does it tell us? about Phyllis Wheatley, her critics, her champions, and ourselves. We'll have all that and more today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast, Phyllis Wheatley. This is a fascinating subject. Literature at its most important, most central, most dramatic, most powerful. If you ever think of literature as being on the sidelines of history, if you ever think literature doesn't matter so much in the larger scheme of things, and hey, I share that view much of the time. It matters to an individual, of course. It can matter to a group, a nation, but plenty of lives go on living. Plenty of things happen, plenty of Conditions are put in place without literature having much of an impact at all. This story is different. This story is not just idle words on a page. It taps into great currents of thought, great seismic shifts in understanding. And at the heart of it is an extremely unlikely figure, a six-year-old girl taken from her home country of Senegal and sent on a slave ship to the Americas, speaking no English, purchased for a family in Boston, and developing a talent and demonstrating an intellect that fit right into the arguments and contradictions, the strengths and weaknesses of the men and women who were forging what was to become the most powerful nation the world had ever seen. Her legacy remains a kind of Rorschach test, as we grapple with her example and her poetry. She mattered, she matters, and literature matters, because people like Phyllis Wheatley wrote poems for people to read and reflect upon and analyze and argue about. Let's dig in. But first, let's hear from some listeners. We'll do that after this quick break. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, our first email comes from Ines. Subject, please help. Please help! Exclamation mark. I'm imagining a listener tied to the train tracks or maybe hanging from her fingernails off the edge of a cliff. I'd better get to this one quickly. How can I help? Maybe I need to get on my white horse and ride to the rescue. That's the frame of mind I'm in, dear listeners. Helpful Jack, chivalrous Jack, and oh my goodness, this email's coming from Spain, where chivalry is especially called for. Dear Jack, I just returned from a great trip to northern Italy to find me in quarantine without any symptoms. I'm stuck at home. Though there are a lot of things to do, I was really grateful to have some new episodes in your podcast to listen to. I'm really looking forward to it. I just finished listening to your Robert Louis Stevenson episode, which I enjoyed, as I always do. Thank you for your work. You always make me feel really happy. In the same sense, as another listener wrote recently, you're a friend who keeps me some hours of good company now and then, and I really would miss you if you weren't there. Thank you. I tried again to buy a book of yours on my Amazon app, but unfortunately, my favorite podcaster has zero hits in Spain. Zero hits. <laughs> How true that is. Would you please send me one of your books to shorten my time at home, although I have a long book list pending. I've been meaning to read one of your books for a long time, and it really would brighten my day, and I'll gladly pay it however you think okay, some virtual coffee or else, though I'm more of a tea type. Thank you again. Just one more thing. I feel perfectly well since I stopped listening to the harmful news. As far as I know, the normal influenza virus kills more people than this one, and even so, the irrational fear they are spreading may be more harmful than the virus itself. Best wishes. Hoping to hear from you soon. Inace. Then she wrote a follow-up email and said, I prefer reading on my ebook because I have a small apartment and I have even some cardboard boxes with books in the aisle to the bedrooms because we are three readers at home. We often read aloud together and reread books, and I don't know how to solve this. I cannot afford a bigger house. Today we read Hesiod's Theogony, my little one's homework. I often gift books to a library nearby, but we are unable to give as much as we should. Hesiod's Theogony... What an incredible school this little one must go to. I suspect there are Jesuits involved, but let's get to the heart of things here. Quarantine. Yes, we are all watching the news with alarm, and this came in a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if Inés would have changed her mind about the, the fear of the virus being more harmful than the virus itself. We are all watching, preparing for the worst, and hoping for the best. It's a good time to stay home, maybe. 
Not that I'm trying to sow fears. I'm just as concerned as anyone about this new virus, which could cause a lot of suffering around the world. So while we're all staying at home, taking care of ourselves and our loved ones, and maybe even being in quarantine in some cases, it's a good time to read Jack's books and listen to Jack's podcast. I am trying to get some books to an ace. Actually, it turns out that there are some Amazon quirks about shipping things. So maybe I'll have to do things the old-fashioned way. Fly to Spain and read the book aloud myself. <laughs> Just kidding. The old-fashioned way is to mail it. But I also want to get the Amazon Amazon hiccup worked out. I will get in ace some good content soon. Speaking of which, we now have bonus content for our Patreon subscribers, those who've signed up at patreon.com slash literature at any level of support have been treated to an extra episode with a couple of Jack Wilson pieces, nearly an hour of extra Jack Wilson for those generous souls who've been supporting the podcast. And we're going to do the same thing again in April. My thanks to all of you. I will plan to do this again in April, May. We will see how it goes. So if you haven't signed up, now is a good time over there at patreon.com slash literature. Our next email comes from Stephanie. Oh, boy, this one. This one is really good. Subject, thank you for your amazing podcast slash greetings from Germany. Dear Jack, my name is Stephanie and I'm from Germany. So first of all, I apologize for my poor English. If there are any stupid mistakes in this text and you'd like to read this email for your listeners in your podcast, please feel free to correct them. Well, Stephanie, that's no problem. If I know one thing about Germans is that their English is very good better than Americans most of the time. So I'm really not expecting to have to correct much. I'm sure your English is outstanding. In fact, why don't I just go ahead and read it straight through without stopping to correct anything. Jack, thanks podcast for fantastic. It likes me much wonder bar. Even voice soft kills my ear. Favoritish episode, Madame Bovary. She likes me much. <laughs> I'm kidding. I am so kidding. That's how I sound. When I'm speaking in a foreign language, if you translated my Italian into English, I would sound like this, or worse, I will have one beer. <laughs> That's the kind of thing I say. I will pay with money. Thank you for my one beer. I like my one beer. It tastes good. Now I will pay with my money. Goodbye, friends. Stephanie, like all Germans, has much more command of English than I have of any other foreign language. Jack? She says, I want to thank you so much for your wonderful podcast, which I love very much and which reignited my passion and interest for literature. I studied literature until 2016, which was one of the greatest experiences in my life. At this time, literature meant everything to me. I spend most of my days at university attending many more classes than were obligatory because I wanted to know everything about my favorite authors. I was so curious and excited about everything. Often, I stayed in the library of the university until midnight when it closed, never getting tired of writing essays and reading. I would have liked to get a PhD in literature and do research and literary studies all my life. But in Germany, careers at universities are very insecure, and there is a high risk of getting unemployed. Therefore, with a heavy heart, I gave up my dream and started a, quote, useful, unquote, job, which is much more secure. Oh my, Stephanie, I feel your pain. This is the journey that so many people take. 
Now, Stephanie says, I do public relations for an office which I am not good at and which bores and overtaxes me at the same time. I read far less than during my time as a student because my eyes are so tired from working with the computer all day. I often have a headache and can't focus on reading books anymore because my thoughts begin to drift dealing with problems at work. I am always so worried about making mistakes at my job and being reprimanded by my boss. At these times, your podcast is a great comfort and distraction for me. It reminds me of my love for literature and the time I was passionate about something and good at what I did. I can just close my eyes, relax on the train on my way home, or just lay in bed after a stressful day at work and listen to you learning about my favorite authors and books again. You have a wonderful voice and a great way to express your curiosity and interest, but you are also just such a likable guy whom I'd like to have as a friend. We are friends, Stephanie. You can just say it. Like our friend from Brazil who just asserted it right in the email subject line, Brazilian friend. Just assert that you are my friend and it happens and I welcome the assertion. I need friends too. But I know what you mean. It would be nice to be friends in real life. We could all use a few more of those. Back to the email. I adored your podcasts about my favorite authors, Kafka, Dostoevsky, the Bronte sisters, Gogol, and Thomas Hardy. But I also like the podcast where you and Mike discuss your favorite top 10. They're always so funny and cheer me up when I feel depressed. By the way, I always imagine Mike Palindrome. <laughs> Let me pause there. I started to feel like I was floating when I read this sentence. Imagining a listener, imagine Mike Palindrome. This is extraordinary stuff for me. I get such a kick out of this. So how do you imagine, Mike, dear listener? Back to the email. She says, by the way, I always imagine Mike Palindrome, for you call him the president, as living in a kind of White House. She writes that with capital letters like the White House in America where the president lives. A kind of White House, which resembles a temple with a gigantic library. It has huge golden bookshelves and white marble pillars and portraits of all the former presidents of the Literature Supporters Club. And Mike is sitting on a throne all day, which is made of books. And his servants are waving a fan, which is made of pages of Don Quixote, to cool his brain that is hot by his strong concentration. <laughs> Whoa! Wow, I... <laughs> I don't even know what to say. This is so accurate. It's uncanny. I emailed it to Mike and he responded, time to beef up security. It looks like we have a leak. The president has been spotted in his natural element on his throne made of books with his golden bookshelves. There's only one detail that Stephanie got wrong. I'm sorry, Stephanie. The fans are all made out of covers of Don Quixote. As it turned out that the pages were too thin and did not sufficiently cool the president's brain. What can I say? He gets overheated. And while you might think it's a little wasteful to destroy 10 copies of Don Quixote every day to make his fan, he insists on a brand new one every day, it's actually been better. I've been secretly taking the coverless books to the post office, where I mail them to unsuspecting readers all over the world, which I'm doing as part of the court-ordered community service project that somehow came my way after Mike trashed Don Quixote and told listeners it was overrated and they didn't need to bother to read it because there's a character who vomits into another character's mouth. He gets all the glory and I get all the dirty work. You see how it goes, living near a president. 
Nobody's out there cooling off my brain. Back to the email. Seriously, Stephanie says, I always admire Mike and you because you read and know so much. And I really would like to know how you two manage to read so many books and even many times in your daily life. Jack, I would be delighted if you do an episode about one of the following authors, if you know them. Thomas Bernard, Italo Svevo, Fernando Pessoa, or George Buchner. Or if you prefer, you could also do another episode about Kafka. For example, he wrote very interesting funny, and absurd texts from the point of view of animals, e.g. a report to an academy and investigations of a dog. Maybe this would be an entertaining topic. Oh, a very entertaining topic. All those are good suggestions, actually. Pessoa is kind of a must-do, and Zvevo has been on my list for a long time. He cracks me up. And more Kafka, of course. We need to tackle the metamorphosis, maybe in the context of his animal stories. That would be fun. Stephanie says, there's also one other thing I would like to know about you. You are always talking about reading books, but you are an author as well, aren't you? So I'd like to know, what does writing mean to you? I am not an author, but for me, writing is very, very essential. I couldn't live without writing. It helps me to order my thoughts, to remain creative and vivid, to bring me back to myself when I feel depressed and anxious, and to discover new sides of myself and my imagination. Why is it that you write, and what does it mean to you? Jack, I hope for thousands of new episodes of your show, and I am so glad you didn't give up the podcast. I know sometimes it has to be very stressful and exhausting for you to go on with the podcast, as you have many other things to do. But I'm very happy that you keep on working. I appreciate your hard work very much, and I am looking forward to each new episode. Best wishes from Germany, Stephanie. Oh my, Stephanie, what a great email. Yes, I would say to keep writing, keep writing. Keep writing for all the reasons you say. Exercise your creative side. It's kind of like this. Do you sign yearbooks in school? That's the tradition here in the States. High school kids buy a yearbook, and at the end of the year, you sign it, and half the time, you don't know what to say. You're signing other people's yearbooks, I mean. Half the time, you're completely nervous about what you're going to write because you're writing in ink, and you... (laughs) Want to say something heartfelt and meaningful without screwing it up and sounding like an idiot or desperate. And because you do this as a freshman and again as a sophomore, you write 50 of these books to friends and lovers and secret crushes and near strangers. You start to view the world through a yearbook lens. It might be December and something happens and you think, oh, this will go in the yearbook. Like you and a friend go to a drive into a snowy ditch You have to walk a mile to the nearest farmhouse for help, and you know that that will be part of your yearbook that you write in that person's yearbook that year. You'll be saying, remember that crazy night when we were in your dad's Impala and it was snowing, and that farmer only had one tooth and asked if we wanted to have some soup before he took us back to our car, and we couldn't stop laughing, but we didn't want to laugh. We didn't want him to see us laughing. That happens. And you're thinking at the time, this will make a great yearbook story. Thank God, because I didn't really have one for this friend. And now I do, and I know what I'm going to write. And when I was in college, we didn't have yearbooks, or at least I didn't. But something different happened. I had all these classes where we had to write papers. And we were always looking for arguments to make. You know, you'd read Hamlet, and your mind would be crackling with ideas for arguments. Oh, maybe I could argue that Hamlet is an anti-hero. Or that his inaction is heroic. 
or that the play within a play is actually Shakespeare's comment on funeral speeches. Sometimes you'd come up with 12 or more of these arguments in 10 weeks because we were on trimesters. And I started to look around me thinking about arguments. I'd buy a fish sandwich in the cafeteria and wonder if the person who rang me up did things differently when it was a fish sandwich versus some other kind of sandwich and what that meant. I'd look at the layout of my dorm and think that the way you had to walk through the lounge to get to the elevator forced a social activity that was productive. Or maybe it was counterproductive. Or maybe I needed to argue both somehow. Arguments in the air, arguments to be grabbed and wrestled to the ground to see if they could do anything for me. And that's what being creative, having a creative mindset does, whether it's writing fiction or writing essays or writing in your diary or writing nonfiction or even getting ready to do a nasty little project like a podcast about literature. You look around the world and you think in creative terms. You see something unusual and you think, oh, there we go. That's good. That works. That will help. You want to analyze it or maybe just share it without analysis. You think it's funny or it's beautiful, or it's moving, and now it's mine, in a sense, because it's something I can use. And part of being creative isn't the satisfaction of putting it down, although that can be satisfying. And it isn't just the glory that accrues to you, although, sure, that can be satisfying as well, no matter how little comes your way. Both those can also be frustrating or fruitless, or even worse, it can make you feel bad or empty, or hollow. You can be attacked as much as praised, and that hurts like hell. But the beauty of living a creative life, whether you write songs, or sing, or make movies, or make art, or write, or teach, or tell stories, or whatever you do, if you keep that side of you open somehow, you live in a different way. You enjoy life more, I think. You notice more. You're more open to life's mysteries and wonders. You laugh harder. You're on the prowl, chasing those epiphanies, ready for those insights. Your eyes look heavenward and suddenly the skies open up and the manna comes pouring down and you run around with buckets or baskets to catch it. Here's a quick Facebook message from Maxime in Manila. Thank you, Jack, for that John Keats podcast. That was one of your best podcasts. I felt nostalgic listening to that as it reminded me of my profound experience visiting the Keats Shelley Museum in Rome three years ago. Reading the Ode to a Grecian Urn, Ode on a Grecian Urn, I guess. Reading the Ode on a Grecian Urn in the room where Keats spent his last moments was an experience of truth and beauty as you had expounded it. To be honest, I listened to that podcast three times. Again, thanks, Jack. Three times! (laughs) I wonder if Maxime was glad when part two came along. Or maybe he was overwhelmed. Ah, well, one can never get enough Keats, I suppose. Maxime, good luck to you in Manila, and thank you for the email. One last email from Mario in Utah. Subject. Okay, here we go. Dear Jack, I am a lifelong literature addict. Dostoevsky, Tolkien, Auden, and Shakespeare have long been my favorites, but your podcast has helped me to discover others that I probably would not have found otherwise. I recently read Kidnapped, all because of you, and have just today ordered my first copy of Keats's poems. Thanks for the time and effort you put into each episode. I ate up the recent ones on Agatha Christie and Voltaire, and you helped me rediscover the amazing Franz Kafka. 
I was forced kicking and screaming through Billy Budd in high school and have since suffered a deep aversion to Melville, but you and special guest Christina have inspired me to give even Moby Dick a try. You don't realize what an achievement that is. In fact, I have to say your choice to invite Christina into that episode to relate her reading experience on the Morgan was simply brilliant. She somehow broke through a 30-year barnacle-encrusted personal life ban on anything and everything Melville and actually made me want to read that monstrosity of a novel. I'll report back to you as I get going. After I am finished with reading Richard III, our local Utah Shakespeare Festival has been running the 10 history plays in order, starting in 2013, and we're finally seeing the magnificent Richard this summer. Yay. I hope you're in this for the long run. There are so many other, so many more writers out there I would love you to hear you talk about. In fact, if I could be so presumptuous, could I make a suggestion or two? Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Anne Frank both represent something belonging to the history of literature, simultaneously beautiful and tragic, and each of their lives teaches us something today we should not ever forget. And how about an episode or two on the incomparable Tolkien? Oh, be still, my beating heart. You have expressed interest in the various places and situations your listeners engage in the podcast. I am a veterinarian and love to put on the podcast during surgery. I find it keeps my mind and hands focused, like listening to music does for my colleagues. I especially enjoyed listening to you read Chekhov's Gooseberries while I was doing a long surgery one day, because there is actually a veterinarian, a veterinary surgeon in the story. P.S. The surgery was a success, and my patient did great. Smiley face. You're the best. Thanks for doing what you do, Mario, Utah. My God, what an email! I sent it along to special guest Christina, who marveled at it and told me she's constantly amazed by the beauty and depth of the emails I receive. I am too. Gooseberries in the surgical room. I guess I had better make sure I don't have any sudden or abrupt loud noises. That could be bad. Thank you, Mario, and thank you, Maxime and Stephanie and Inés. You are filling my heart with more joy than I could ever express. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love hearing from you all and hearing where you are and thinking that there's a community out there it makes me a little less lonely. We'll take one more quick break and come back with the amazing story of Phyllis Wheatley. I want to start somewhere unusual here with a man named Norman Lear, a famous television producer in America, and a character he made famous as part of his show, All in the Family, which was based on a British show called Till Death Do Us Part. The main character in All in the Family was a gentleman who had served in World War II and now lived in Queens, Archie Bunker. He was a bigot. This was the 1970s. It was the most popular show in America. A lot of people turned down the role of Archie Bunker or didn't want to be on the show at all. Mickey Rooney, the former child star, was the first choice to play Archie Bunker. He said, no way. This might flop and the character could be historically bad. Harrison Ford could have been his liberal son-in-law, the role eventually played by Rob Reiner, who was not yet the super director he became. But Harrison Ford said, nope, this is too risky. What was going on here? 
Norman Lear, he's still alive, God bless him, 97 years old. He's strongly liberal. He founded People for the American Way. He supports all kinds of causes. He's devoted himself to advancing the progressive agenda. He's not a bigot, not even close. And he said, let's take on the political issues of the day. Let's talk about this stuff. Open up a dialogue. Expose the truth about people's failings and prejudices and misunderstandings. Let the country see who we really are, warts and all, and entertain them, but also maybe learn something about ourselves. Here we have television, and the model here is, at this time, was I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke Show. And they have these funny little comedy stories about life in these United States, family troubles, husband-wife spats, kids saying the darndest things. Lear changed all that. In the 1970s, he brought out comedies like Maud and the Jeffersons and All in the Family that had characters who protested the war or advocated for it. Abortion, women's rights, racial injustice, those stories were at the heart of these shows. They touched a nerve. They were all popular. The country was ready. They dug in. Now, as you might imagine, by the 1970s and given Norman Lear's left-leaning sympathies, the show featuring Archie Bunker was not a platform for bigotry. Archie is surrounded by characters who criticize him, who set him straight, who argue with him and expose his hypocrisy. He himself will change his mind and defer to higher principles, higher values like loving one's neighbor. He's a bigot. Doesn't mean he's a Nazi. Bigotry is ugly. It's not the same thing as being a, a serial killer. Bigots can go to church and be charitable and treat people with kindness and draw the line at, say, burning a cross on someone's lawn. But it's still bigotry. It's still there, inside, still pernicious, still damaging, still ugly, can still hurt and sometimes hurt badly. Why am I starting with this, with Norman Lear? Because I knew a man very well who was a generation ahead of me, not World War II, but a veteran of the Korean War. He was a nice guy a churchgoer, very smart, very generous, a devoted patriot, and a devout family man, and a charming jokester of a man. It was fun to spend time with him, and I knew that deep down, he was a racist. Didn't come out a lot. He knew it was socially unacceptable, and he himself was in some ways better to black people than some Connecticut country club members I met years later who would say all the right things and vote for all the right people, and then if they saw a black man walking down the street in front of their house, they would call the police. Meanwhile, this man I'm talking about who harbored racist thoughts took in a foster child who was half black because he knew she needed his help. Everyone's on a spectrum. Everyone's different. Everyone's got their issues, their ups and their downs strengths and weaknesses, but I knew this about him, knew he was racist and no arguments I could make. I was pretty young then. I was still in high school, so maybe I wasn't that persuasive either because my arguments were naive or I wasn't the right messenger, but nothing I could say would move him from his racist views. He treated it the way someone who was born with six fingers might. Hey, this is just me. Leave me alone. Don't call attention to it. It's not something I need to change. I'm not going to wave it in your face. I'm just this way. It's more of a shrug than anything, laughing it off. But if you truly pushed him hard, imagine a man with six fingers, if you were pushing him hard, saying, why don't you have five? Why don't you have five? You need to have five. 
he'd eventually get angry and say, shut up and go away, right? Because he doesn't think that he has a choice. It's just in him. It's just him. Well, some of the racists I know don't view it as a choice. They think it's common sense, or they think it's just something they don't need to change. Don't want to, don't need to, can't. So leave me alone. I'll laugh with you about it until you push me too hard, and then I'll lash out back. I was too young to really watch All in the Family, but I knew what it was about, and so in the 80s, long after the show had been off the air, I was surprised when this man's wife mentioned it to me. I said, well, I bet he hated that show, and I was thinking that probably it made him uncomfortable to see Archie expressing those views out loud, and to see the others knocking them down, showing how ugly they truly were exposing all the hypocrisy, and she said, Are you kidding? It was his favorite show. He's never loved a show as much as he loved Archie Bunker. He watched it for ten years, laughing at Archie. Now, here's a problem with art sometimes. For the show to work, it for it to be a comedy, Archie has to be somewhat likable. Unless you portray him as a monster, you have to have some moments of humor, some charisma, some breadth of development, some humanity in your main character, because if you have an unmitigated monster as your main character, the show will be unwatchable. It won't be a comedy. It might work for a few episodes, but this show was on for 10 years. Archie was beloved by the end. His living room chair is in the Smithsonian Museum. But this man, this friend of mine, watched the show. He was smart enough to know that the show's creators were not celebrating Archie's bigotry. They were surfacing it and showing it, showing the hypocrisy of it. This man I knew didn't care. He was glad to hear it anyway because he agreed with it, and he liked hearing it on television, and he liked that Archie learned lessons but didn't really ever change. Next week, he was back with his prejudice intact. And he liked that the country saw that Archie, in spite of his views, was still likable could still do some good things, had room in his heart for qualities we all admire. The bigotry wasn't the only aspect of him. He wasn't a cartoon. He had many sides. And when I heard this, and as I started to puzzle through what it all meant, I realized that the relationship between art and social commentary and social advocacy and the audience is a complicated one. A lot of people no doubt watched All in the Family and reacted just the way that Norman Lear hoped they would, saw that bigotry is wrong and that bigots are often hypocritical. Maybe it helped some well-meaning people talk to or deal with the bigots in their own lives. Maybe it helped some people see and understand the root problem better, see how pernicious it is, how pervasive, how damaging. But maybe... It also didn't work that way for a lot of people. Maybe it made some people double down on their bigotry. Maybe it made it acceptable to be an Archie Bunker. Maybe it made it acceptable to tolerate one. Maybe there was a backlash against shows that were too preachy, or shows that were too liberal, or shows that were too controversial. Maybe there was a backlash against shows with blue-collar families that weren't anything other than racially enlightened. And as we talk about Phyllis Wheatley today, you will hear a lot of similar themes. You'll see how the reaction of an audience often tells you a lot more about the audience than it does about the artist. It's a lot more fascinating, too, at least in this case. The response to Wheatley over the past few centuries is incredible. There are a lot of parallels, or at least 
made me think of a lot of parallels to Barack Obama. Some of this stuff has not really changed all that much in America. And there's a figure at the heart of all this, Thomas Jefferson, who is one of the most complicated figures in all of American history. You see him wrestling with ideas and feelings and the power of his own mind and all his swirling values, his beliefs. He's looking at his hand and seeing it has six fingers. He knows it should have five. What response do you make to that? And how does a country respond to him? But let's start with Phyllis. That wasn't her name, of course. She was born in Africa in what is now Senegal. I should tell you from the start that usually I pull from a lot of different materials, websites and encyclopedias and magazine articles and books and letters and other source material. This time, I'm particularly indebted to a short book by Henry Louis Gates Jr. called The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley. Skip Gates is as masterful as ever in this book. As usual, he sets out all sides of a story, giving room to arguments and counter-arguments, making his case like a very good lawyer, anticipating the objections or questions of the judge and jury. I don't adopt his conclusions. He's not really making any particular argument, but he's very helpful in summarizing and presenting two and a half centuries of historical thought. We're talking about some specific voices here, as well as some deep and abiding currents of thought. Gates is great at this stuff. Okay, back to our little girl in Senegal. She was born around 1753 in West Africa. At the age of seven or eight, she was sold into slavery by a local chief and transported on a ship to North America. The ship was called the Phyllis and landed in Boston, part of what was still a British colony called Massachusetts, on July 11th. 1761. After it arrived, a wealthy Boston merchant named John Wheatley purchased her to be a servant for his wife, Susanna. The Wheatleys, John and Susanna, gave her the name Phyllis after the ship and gave her their own last name, Wheatley, which was a common practice at the time. The Wheatleys were slave owners, obviously. They were not above that, but they were also known for being progressive. They had an 18-year-old daughter named Mary who started tutoring Phyllis, taught her to read and write. Their son Nathaniel helped out too. This was an extraordinary education for a woman of any race at this time, and for an enslaved person it was unprecedented. Phyllis picked it up quickly, and this encouraged the Wheatleys to keep teaching her more, which is a dynamic that any teacher will understand. Nothing is more gratifying than an apt pupil who grasps things quickly. The saints will exercise patience and work with someone to make sure they get it. Patience is a supreme virtue for a teacher, but when a student soaks everything up and comes back the next day ready for more, and you only need to show them something one time and they get it and don't forget it, and sometimes they even surprise you by knowing something you didn't even remember teaching them or thinking something in a way that you yourself hadn't thought of, well then, teaching is kind of exhilarating. Sounds like this is what it was like for the Wheatleys. Phyllis could read Greek and Latin classics and even the most difficult passages in the Bible. The Wheatleys had their friends and family come around and showed her off. This was so unusual, so astonishing, so remarkable. She not only could read, she could read Alexander Pope and John Milton and Homer and Horace and Virgil. She could read the Bible. And by 14, she was writing her own poetry. This is amazing stuff. Had the Wheatleys been a different sort of family, they might have stopped this as soon as she showed any aptitude at all. But instead, they encouraged it, pushed it further, and it's important that they did. 
Let's put this in context. A whole continent of white people were living among enslaved people of color, and yet they themselves were agitating for their own freedom. They had not yet written the immortal words, all men are created equal, but they were chafing at being colonial subjects of a king. They demanded freedom and appealed to the values of freedom in order to justify what they wanted. And the British argued back, freedom? You talk to us of freedom. Aren't you the country that's addicted to owning slaves? Where's the freedom in that? It's a huge problem, a huge contradiction. And we're not talking about Archie Bunker sitting in his living room chair now. We're talking about the leaders of the American colonies, the lawyers, the landowners, the judges, the politicians, the educated. They're trying to win hearts and minds in America and in the British Parliament, too. And they have this big hole in their argument, this potentially fatal flaw. And they view themselves as Christian, and that's a problem as well, because there are some seriously unchristian aspects to owning people and making them work for you. There's the ripping them from their homes, the abduction, the kidnapping, the purchasing, the indignity, the punishments, the rape and abuse and subjugation. None of that is very Christian. Christ wouldn't have owned a plantation full of slaves, would he? Wouldn't he be among the slaves, washing their feet? Wouldn't he? Well, that's where white America kicked in their own arguments. They had to make sense of this, so they said there was a natural inferiority to the black races, to the African races. Wait, wait, said the critics. Isn't this just a question of opportunity? We see that they can't read, but is that because they're incapable? Or is it just that nobody has taught them? You see the problem for the bigot. If you say it's the latter, that it's because nobody has taught them, then you accept that the reason why the slaves aren't reading is that nobody taught them. You're not really saying they're naturally inferior. If anything, you're indicting your own society for not giving them the opportunity, which was not what they were trying to do. So they have to say, well, yes, be that as it may, they don't have the same educational opportunities. But even if they were educated, it wouldn't matter because they're not smart enough anyway. This is where Thomas Jefferson lived. He spent a lot of time telling himself this. He constructed incredibly complicated arguments to support positions like these. The man who wrote the words, all men are created equal. Well, let's listen to what it says, actually. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Beautiful words. Astonishing words. There are no caveats here. Well, you have to accept that the word men is inclusive of women. Why shouldn't it be? Why, why shouldn't men mean... Why should men mean only white men, for that matter? We're talking about unalienable rights coming from the Creator, and we're talking about all, not some, not the rich only, or those who own land, or those who pass a test, or those who are Christian, or those who were born in one country or another. These are not opinions, says Jefferson in this passage. These are not political positions. These, 
in the words of Thomas Jefferson, are self-evident truths. They are unassailable positions, as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4, or water freezing when it goes below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Governments come from men and derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Doesn't say consent of the few, the elite, the most noble-minded, the best educated. It says the governed. And here's where we see what looks like a contradiction, as it was for Jefferson, of course. He himself owned slaves and had an affair with one of them. An affair is maybe a charitable word there. He had children with his enslaved mistress and struggled all his life to get over the problem of this, this inconsistency, this hypocrisy. As we'll see, that's a big part of our story with Phyllis Wheatley. But it also explains how we ourselves hold Jefferson in two minds, we Americans today, including the black community, as Gates points out. On the one hand, Jefferson is viewed as extremely flawed. And although Gates gives a lot of deference to the times and says something judicious like, we should be careful not to judge the past because we know that in future decades we'll be judged too. And I agree with that. I'm sure my grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to look at the planet they inherit and think, geez, you were so backwards back then, and you didn't do enough. And I agree. But we can't take this too far. We can't just say, well, Jefferson was a slave owner, but that's just how things were back then. They didn't know any better, because that doesn't tell the whole story. They knew there were contradictions there. They knew it was ugly. They knew it was wrong, and they knew they were doing it anyway. A lot of people were telling them it was wrong, and you can see from their own arguments and letters and personal diaries that they struggled. They knew there were moral flaws here. But at the same time, Jefferson wrote these beautiful words, a credo. That thing could have been a racist tract. It could have said, we're white people, and white people deserve to have the chance to govern themselves. It could have said, we've outgrown you, king. We don't need you, and we're too far away, and hey, you can't treat fellow educated white men like this. No, the principles are there. Future generations can draw upon them and fight for them and attempt to put those noble principles into practice. That's why Jefferson is both beloved and admired by all Americans, not just white people, while at the same time viewed as maybe the most tortuously flawed individual among all the founders. So, what does this have to do with Phyllis Wheatley? Here we are a new nation on the verge of coming into being, and one with this huge contradiction. Everyone should be free, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's a self-evident truth that comes from our Creator. And yet, our society has a huge enslaved population, people who are not free. And we're going to keep that the way it is, even as we fight for and demand our freedom. How to reconcile those two? One way might be to say, okay, we'd better free the slaves. A lot of people took that position. Others said, do we really have to? Isn't there a way to make sense of this, to square the circle, to support what we're doing so we don't have to change? Can't we just paper over this somehow, find some verses in the Bible that will sort of excuse this? So they did. They developed a theory that black skin was part of the curse of Ham, a curse Noah made when he was drunk and became naked and his son Ham saw him. Noah was angry and issued a curse and said Canaan would be cursed and a servant of servants. Ham was the father of Canaan. The story doesn't say anything about race, let alone black skin. It doesn't say what Ham did wrong. It doesn't say anything about slavery. And yet, there it was. 
servant of servants, biblical explanation and justification. Another one was the mark of Cain. Cain, who murdered his brother and received a mark. Well, maybe that mark is black skin. Maybe the curse cast upon Cain was a sign that black people had to be slaves, were inferior, whatever. Again, this is pretty sketchy, but it was commonly used without being looked into too carefully, used and cited. And then there's the example of the real world, black people who can't read. Doesn't that mean they're not smart? We'll just ignore the lack of education part, and we'll assume they probably couldn't read anyway, even if you gave them a lot of chances. Well, here's Phyllis Wheatley. A few short years, and she's not only reading poetry, she's writing it. A black girl, a slave, straight from Africa. And the only difference is that she had people around her who wanted to teach her. Now, do you think society easily accepted this, this counterexample that disproves an argument that they wanted to apply to an entire race, not just to support bigotry? You could probably always let a few exceptions through. Yeah, I hate black people, says the character, and do the right thing. But I like Prince and Michael Jordan and Eddie Murphy. But this is a situation where your example is to support an institution like slavery. You're saying that it's not just about a few individual differences, but an entire set of people. An entire race of people are genetically inferior. You're justifying whipping and beating and buying and selling and separating families and rape and murder and lynching and chains and all of these atrocities by saying, this must be so. This is a different category of humans, maybe subhuman, maybe more like apes than people, maybe, maybe, maybe. Jefferson himself didn't think that, but he needed something he and his fellow travelers needed something. Literacy maybe helped. And meanwhile, Phyllis Wheatley is starting to write poems that are actually good. Good enough to be published in newspapers. Good enough for her to go to England, where she's lauded by the public. Oh, aren't they excited about it? They know what this means to those upstart colonialists. Here you go, freedom agitators. Try to argue for the natural inferiority of slaves when this one can write verses like Pope. Not quite as good, maybe, but pretty good, close enough, and she's just getting started. And a few years ago, she was on a ship, and you've been buying and selling her over there in America. So what did they do, these forces of bigotry? They put her on trial. She must not have written these poems, they say. The Wheatleys probably wrote them. Yeah. We know how they are. We know how they think. They want us to think black people are just as good as white people, don't they? So they've made up this hoax. This wasn't a handful of cranks who put her on trial. John Hancock was on the jury. So was the governor of Massachusetts. It's astonishing. A jury convened of the community's best and brightest, the most distinguished individuals to test whether or not this young woman could actually wrote the poems that were published in her name. They checked whether she understood the references. They asked her questions. And in the end, they concluded that, yes, she had written the poems. What an ordeal for a poet to go through. Poets today, well, they're miserable little creatures, aren't they? Selling a few hundred copies, maybe a few dozen tweeting out their thoughts on politics. I don't know that they have much say today. They're still there. 
the truth tellers, the canaries in the coal mine. I appreciate them. I don't think we'll be seeing a trial devoted to poetry anytime soon. Phyllis Wheatley kept writing. She was so successful in England, the Wheatleys gave her her freedom. And when she came back to America, she got married to a fellow freed slave. And the one tough thing about being a newly freed slave is you now have to figure out how to provide for yourself. Room and board are no longer paid for. But she knows how to be a house servant and she can sell her poetry. So that's the plan. Live off her poetry. She's selling some books in America and some books in England. Not a lot, but it's a start. This will become important to our story later. Phyllis is well known now. She's treated like a curiosity, a phenomenon, and in some ways she was. She was the first African-American poet for sure and the first poet of African descent to ever be published in English. That's incredible stuff. It made her a phenomenal figure. And the trial helped publicize her. She crossed paths with luminaries like Benjamin Franklin, and she exchanged letters with George Washington. And if you ever needed a reminder of the grace and dignity of George Washington, you can see it in his letter to her. I should say we really haven't talked about Wheatley's poetry yet. We're going to get there. What you mainly need to know is that she was basically publishing poetry that white people in America and Europe would also be writing at this time, very close to Alexander Pope and Pope and his heroic couplets. And the subjects are often what we might call occasional, and by that I mean written for an occasion. If a famous person died, a poem, a poem might be written as a tribute. Or a poem might be written to celebrate a governor's accomplishments or a scientific discovery, that kind of thing. We're not in the world of 20th or 21st century confessional poems. We're not in T.S. Eliot's world of modernism or attempting to address the role of an artist in a changing society. This is before Romanticism even, before Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats and Byron and Shelley. We can't judge them, the poets of this day, by those standards. That's not her project. These are stately, steady, technically astute lines that march across the pages of a newspaper and make readers nod in appreciation. They're not soul-searching, but they're intelligent and persuasive and accurate and impressive. People write them and read them like you might appreciate a good plowed field, or maybe I should say a good sermon, or a nice acceptance speech, or a rousing political pamphlet, or a well-rendered painting, maybe a portrait of the governor of a colony, or something similar, something to hang on your wall. So here's what Phyllis Wheatley wrote for George Washington. To George Washington from Phyllis Wheatley, 26 October, 1775. From Phyllis Wheatley. I have taken the freedom to address your excellency in the enclosed poem, and entreat your acceptance, though I am not insensible of its inaccuracies. You are being appointed by the Grand Continental Congress to be Generalissimo of the armies of North America, together with the fame of your virtues, excite sensations not easy to suppress. Your generosity, therefore, I presume, will pardon the attempt. Wishing Your Excellency all possible success in the great cause you are so generously engaged in, I am Your Excellency's most obedient, humble servant, Phyllis Wheatley. And now let's... Here the poem she enclosed. Enclosure, poem by Phyllis Wheatley, 26 October, 1775. Celestial choir, 
Enthroned in realms of light, Columbia's scenes of glorious toils I write. While freedom's cause her anxious breast alarms, she flashes dreadful in refulgent arms. See Mother Earth's her offspring's faint bemoan, and nations gaze at scenes before unknown. See the bright beams of heaven's revolving light, involved in sorrows and the veil of night. The goddess comes, she moves divinely fair, olive and laurel binds her golden hair. Wherever shines this native of the skies, unnumbered charms and recent graces rise. Muse, bow propitious while my pen relates how pour her armies through a thousand gates, as when Aeolus heaven's fair face deforms, enwrapped in tempest and a night of storms. Astonished ocean feels the wild uproar, the refluent surges beat the sounding shore, or thick as leaves in autumn's golden rain, such and so many moves the warrior's train. In bright array they seek the work of war, where high unfurled the ensign waves in air. Shall I to Washington their praise recite? Enough thou know'st them in the fields of fight. Thee, first in place and honors, we demand the grace and glory of thy martial band. Famed for thy valor, for thy virtues more, hear every tongue thy guardian aid implore. One century scarce performed its destined round, when Gallic powers Columbia's fury found. And so may you, whoever dares disgrace the land of freedom's heaven-defended race. Fixed are the eyes of nations on the scales, for in their hopes Columbia's arm prevails. Anon Britannia droops the pensive head, while round increase the rising hills of dead. Ah, cruel blindness to Columbia's state! Lament thy thirst of boundless power too late. Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. Thy every action let the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine, with gold unfading, Washington be thine. Here's what Washington's response was from George Washington to Phyllis Wheatley, 28 February, 1776. Cambridge. Mrs. Phyllis. Your favor of the 26th of October did not reach my hands till the middle of December. Time enough, you will say, to have given an answer ere this. Granted. But a variety of important occurrences continually interposing to distract the mind and withdraw the attention, I hope will apologize for the delay and plead any excuse for the seeming, but not real, neglect. I thank you most sincerely for your polite notice of me and the elegant lines you enclosed, and however undeserving I may be of such encomium and panegyric, the style and manner exhibit a striking proof of your great poetical talents. In honor of which, and as a tribute justly due to you, I would have published the poem had I not been apprehensive that while I only meant to give the world this new instance of your genius, I might have incurred the imputation of vanity. This, and nothing else, determined me not to give it place in the public prints. If you should ever come to Cambridge or near headquarters, I shall be happy to see a person so favored by the muses, and to whom nature has been so liberal and beneficent in her dispensations. I am, with great respect, your obedient humble servant, G. Washington.
Washington did send the poem to an acquaintance who went ahead and sent it to the Pennsylvania Magazine and the Virginia Gazette, along with a note that said, Messieurs Dixon and Hunter, pray insert the enclosed letter and verses written by the famous Phyllis Wheatley, the African poetess, in your next Gazette. Outstanding. It's nice to have Washington treat Wheatley so well, inviting her to come visit him at headquarters, because Jefferson did not do anything of the sort. Jefferson was still trying to find some justification, some squaring of that circle, some reason that would justify his hypocrisy. He couldn't say that she was an ape because he believed in the humanity of slaves. He believed that they were human beings. And now there was a trial where they said that, yes, Phyllis Wheatley actually wrote the poems. The hoax argument was out. So how can Jefferson sit there owning slaves participating in this vile system when there's a Phyllis Wheatley out there showing that it is very likely that education and opportunity would show that there is no inherent inferiority. She got a bit of education, and here she is, writing poems better than most people. A lot of white people had a better chance to write poetry and couldn't do it as well as her. So what justifies owning them and preventing them from being educated? Where's the superiority of white people now? And this is where we get into kind of a ridiculous world of argument where we look at extreme examples like Mozart or Shakespeare and try to draw conclusions about race from those. Yes, Mozart was white. Yes, Shakespeare was white. But my God, those are two people out of billions who have lived. They come along every few hundred years. They're freaks. They're accidents of history. You can't draw conclusions from those examples. For all we know, some little kid in China is just as gifted as Mozart, but never sits down at a piano or has a father who gets him started. For all we know, there's some Eskimo who might have had the facility of language of Shakespeare, but just didn't have the good fortune to be born in Elizabethan times, where writing plays was lucrative and made sense. We're not talking about super geniuses and the good timing and good fortune of them being in the right place at the right time. We're talking about average people, the casts of thousands, the throngs of millions. Jefferson didn't look at some little white kid and say, he's not Shakespeare, therefore he should be sold and whipped and sent to a plantation to pick cotton. No, he would say, okay, well, he's not Shakespeare, but he can be a merchant or a congressperson or the captain of a ship or maybe just a scrivener or a customs house operator or maybe a yeoman farmer. He's capable of all those things. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. But Jefferson has to figure out something. He's too smart and too thoughtful not to see that his argument that black people are human but intellectually inferior is threatened by Phyllis Wheatley. So he says instead, hey, she can write poetry, sure, but there's no imagination there. That's where white people differ. They have a creativity, an artistry that goes beyond what black people can do. Black people can read and write and learn how to string words together, but they're not fired with genius. The compositions in her name, he wrote, listen to that, how he's still clinging to the idea that maybe she didn't write them. Compositions in her name. Can I pause here and say that if you think we're so enlightened today, let me give you the example of Barack and Michelle Obama, America's first black president and first black first lady, and the way that they were treated. Barack Obama didn't really write his books, said the critics. He's just reading off a teleprompter. Watch that man give an impromptu press conference and tell me you still believe that. He is a smart dude. 
He was the president of the Harvard Law Review. That's not like some social club. That's reserved for the most intelligent people at one of the hardest schools in the country to get into. Do you think those ambitious strivers at Harvard Law School would have elected a fraud? They all want to be president of the Law Review themselves. They'd have never done it for a guy who couldn't write his own book. And Michelle Obama, jeez, the abuse she took. She looks like an ape, said the vilest creatures on the internet. Look at these pictures, ha ha ha. Disgusting stuff. Back to Wheatley. The compositions in her name, wrote Jefferson, quote, are below the dignity of criticism, end quote. He went on to say this about blacks, quote, in general, their existence appears to participate to participate more of sensation than reflection. And comparing them, he's talking about black people, comparing them by their faculties of memory, reason, and imagination, it appears to me that in memory they are equal to whites, in reason much inferior. And, quote, Never yet could I find that a black had uttered a thought above the level of plain narration, never see even an elementary trail of painting or sculpture. End quote. He says they're good at music, more gifted than the whites with accurate ears for tune and time. But, quote, whether they will be equal to the composition of a more extensive run of melody or of complicated harmony is yet to be proved. End quote. See how this works? Don't educate blacks. Don't give them any opportunities. And then say, okay, fine, they can sing as well as white people, but where's their Mozart? Well, maybe their Mozart was struck down by his master in some hot field, dying of thirst. This is awful stuff. Anti-slavery writers used Phyllis Wheatley as an example. You see, they said, you see what happens when we give someone a chance? They're equal. It can happen. Jefferson says, quote, Misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the blacks is misery enough, God knows, but not poetry. Love is the peculiar ostrum of the poet. Their love is ardent but it kindles the senses only, not the imagination. Religion, indeed, has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. End quote. Look at that moving of the goalposts. Blacks can't read and can't write. Oh, wait, they can? Sure, but they can't write poems. Oh, wait, they can do that too. Well, but their poems, uh, it seems to me they don't have any imagination. What does that even mean? And why would we limit ourselves to Phyllis Wheatley, even if we accept that her poems are lacking in some way? Why wouldn't we think that if we had a dozen Phyllis Wheatleys, a hundred Phyllis Wheatleys, or a hundred Phil Wheatleys, one of them would show the kind of love or imagination or whatever it is that Jefferson claims he's looking for? There are more arguments, too, but I think that's enough for Jefferson, except to say that his arguments were discussed for the next hundred years, even longer maybe, at least 150. And you might say we're still making the same arguments today. We argue about Jefferson too, because the paradox of his life and his views is America in a nutshell. Had he been a saint, the author of the Declaration of Independence only, we might look at him like a Jesus or a Gandhi. Because he had this whole other side of him, He's much more of an embodiment of America itself, with all its promise and all its flaws. 
the anger on angel, the anger, that might work too, the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other. It's light and shadow, and the light is bright and dazzling, and the shadows are dark and long. I want to turn now to another complicated aspect of Wheatley, which reminds me of one of Dr. Johnson's uglier expressions. I hate to say Dr. Johnson is a hero of mine, and David Hume is too, because sometimes they say things that are impossible to defend. Dr. Johnson was asked about a woman preaching at a Quaker meeting, and Johnson said, Sir, a woman's preaching is like a dog's walking on his hind legs. It is not done well, but you are surprised to find it done at all. Very sharp and vivid. It's Johnson at his best as far as metaphor goes. And it's Johnson at his worst in terms of dismissing an entire category of people, doing an entire category of things. But it reminds me of Wheatley. You could look at her example and say, who cares if it was done well? Her writing poetry, it was miraculous that it was done at all. You could also flip that a little bit and say that it was miraculous that society finally let it happen, that she finally broke through all the prejudice and the vested interests that people had in keeping her down, keeping her illiterate. What the Wheatleys did seemed so simple and basic to us, but it was dangerous at the time. Slaveholders were powerful people. They had money and power. They fought for their views. They were angry and vicious. They weren't above brass-knuckle politics. And here's Phyllis Wheatley, learning fast, writing well, putting herself at the top, not just of her class, but any class, whites included. A woman, strike one in those days. A slave strikes two and three and four and five, and she breaks down this barrier. She bolsters the people who say, see, it can be done. And see, there's another pro-slavery myth shattered, another pro-slavery argument undermined. What more can a poet do? What more can a person do? Name a poet of the last 50 years who's done anything close to this, what Phyllis Wheatley did. I think we're in Jesse Owens in front of Hitler territory, or Barack Obama in a nation with historic levels of prejudice becoming president. Yes, it can be done. Yes, it can be done. It's incredibly inspiring, given the odds, given the forces arrayed against Phyllis Wheatley. It's a little embarrassing how shocking it seemed, but that's less about Phyllis Wheatley and more about the people who believed that they'd never see it happen. And yet, and yet there have been some strong critics of her poetry, even if we accept that she's up there with Susan B. Anthony and George Washington Carver and Duke Ellington and Sally Ride and other true pioneers, people who showed that something could be done We don't have to over-exaggerate the strength of her poetry. It's fair to look at it and judge it and say, hey, it's not that good, or it's pedestrian, or it's pretty good, but not as good as so-and-so's poetry. Our desire not to be racist doesn't mean we have to say she's the greatest poet who ever lived. She's not Shakespeare. I get it. Maybe if we were judging poems blind, she wouldn't belong in this or that anthology. Maybe it's the historical significance of her as a competent poet that makes her of interest today. There's another criticism, too. Black poets and critics have been some of her harshest critics. She writes like a white person, they say. She celebrates Christianity and the status quo. She's betraying her native Africa, and they point to one poem in particular as the example. This is the 
one that's most read, most anthologized, most celebrated, anti-slavery advocates loved this example. Whites thought it would persuade other whites. Look at this. Look at this poem. Look at what she's saying. How can you keep a person like this in chains? And black poets in the 20th century said, look at this poem. This is Uncle Tom. This is the house Negro. Where's the poetry? Where's the soul? It's the most reviled poem, says Gates, in African-American letters. Another great contradiction, a paradox. This one reminds me a little of Barack Obama, too. Hooray, we finally have a black president. Too bad he's not black enough. On the one hand, birtherism. He's not legitimate. He's not truly American, with the ugly insinuation that a black man must be a secret Muslim or born in Africa or have some other un-American trait. That's on the one side. On the other side, you get some black people saying, oh, great, he's president now. He's African-American, but he's half-white. He talks like a white person. He grew up in Hawaii. He went to Columbia and Harvard. He's a lawyer. He's whatever. He's not black. He's not black enough. We're still waiting to see if America is willing to elect a dark-skinned African-American, maybe one who sounds more black, maybe one who experienced more prejudice, and maybe one who's angrier about the experience. See how this works? In some ways, it doesn't change. So what is this magical poem that is, on the one hand, the truest distillation of an African-American poet writing in the 18th century, and on the other hand, the most reviled poem in African-American letters? It's called On Being Brought from Africa to America, and it's one of the few poems that Phyllis Wheatley wrote about slavery. A lot of her poems are about the Stamp Act or other political ideas then prominent in the colonies. A lot have religious and classical and abstract themes. A few are about her daily life. About a a third are elegies to famous people or dedicated to famous figures, like the one we saw about George Washington earlier. This poem was different. This one was about her experience on the slave ship and what it meant, and this one touched a chord, for better or worse. Here it is. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land." taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior, too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. That's it. Very interesting. A lot going on here. You can see where the black critics are coming from. Where's the anger, they say? Where's the outrage? Amiri Baraka objected to the language itself. It's the language of the oppressors, isn't it? Isn't it adopting that viewpoint? It's not the music and soul of what was going on with the slaves. The African-influenced music, the drum beats, the chants, the genuine expression of the African continent brought to a foreign land. The language and diction and tone might as well have been one of the Wheatley kids. That's not totally fair to Phyllis, but it is fair to look at a poem and note that about it, and even to wish that it had something different. We can say it's a great shame that literacy wasn't extended to all the slaves, because we might have some beautiful and moving and inspiring poetry from others, which maybe would have adopted that language or rhythm or music the patois that was found not in the genteel New England household, but somewhere else, the fields of South Carolina or Georgia, or deep in the Louisiana bayou. Why not? That would be great. 
that might even be preferable to this poem. And doesn't this poem sort of accept the superiority of white culture? Africa is pagan, it suggests. Only mercy that delivered her here. Better to be a slave in America than a free pagan African. You can see where there's an objection to this. My soul was benighted, she says. B-E-N-I-G-H-T-E-D. But now I know about God and Jesus. Those first four lines are all in that vein, and I can understand why there are critics. Phyllis Wheatley comes across in these objections, I mean. She comes across as kind of a brainwashed house negro who could write poems, yes, but who was echoing some of the worst arguments of her era. That slaves were lucky to be here. Their lives in Africa were barbaric, pagan, unenlightened, primitive, subhuman. It's God's will to bring them here where they can be Christians. They're fortunate to have Christianity, even if they're shackled. That's a bad set of arguments, and Wheatley falls right into that. Did she really think this? Did she really think she was lucky to be a slave because it meant she was Christian? Was she that co-opted, her Stockholm Syndrome that strong, that she thought slavery was good overall? We know that she did not. She was not that blind, not that naive. We know from another poem she wrote where she directly takes up this central dilemma. How could a set of people, this group of colonies, at once talk about freedom and yet deny others freedom? This is a poem called To the Right Honorable William, Earl of Dartmouth. And it has these lines. No more, America, in mournful strain of wrongs and grievance undressed complain. No longer shall thou dread the iron chain which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made, and with it meant to enslave the land. Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good, by feeling hearts alone best understood, I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's happy fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case. And can I then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway? She's saying that a slave knows better than anyone what it means not to be free. They are in favor of the colonial cause for independence because they have seen the horrors of a lack of freedom in the most extreme form. She says, I was a little girl when I was snatched from my happy homeland thanks to this cruel fate. How do you think my parents felt about that? Think about what misery that must have been for them, what heartbreaking sorrow they must have felt, excruciating pangs. Phyllis Wheatley knew what slavery was, what it meant, what came with it. She might have been glad to find Jesus, glad for the exposure to Christianity. That doesn't mean she didn't wish it had all happened in some different way, without the ugliness and awfulness and torment and torture of slavery. She can think multiple things at once. She's allowed. Now, let's go back to that poem of hers, the most reviled poem, and look at the second four lines, because it's here that I find her to be a much stronger poet and she's usually given credit for being. Let's read the whole thing. First four lines. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, 
taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there is a Savior too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. That's the first four. That's where she gets the most criticized. It sounds like you're justifying slavery, says the critics. But then she says, Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. Yes, a diabolic die, diabolic, the sign of the devil, the sign of Cain. Some view us scornfully, she says, but hey, those people who call us that also call themselves Christians. They think we're products of the devil. They tell themselves we're sons and daughters of Cain. I hear you. I know what you're saying. But hey, this is me channeling Phyllis Wheatley. Hey, Christians, You think we're the devil. You think we descend from Cain. You know there's no evidence for this, but whatever. You've talked yourself into it. But hey, you Christians, your whole religion is based on a forgiving God. Your great prophet and Savior, Jesus, told you this over and over and over. God is love. God is merciful. God forgives. You shall not judge. So what are you going to do, Christians, when you give us your religion? When you justify slavery by saying you're advancing Christianity, how are you going to reconcile that with your teachings that we can be Christians too and be good Christians and head to heaven through our faith and good works? Is God, is your God a racist? Is he not forgiving? Is he not merciful? And does he not tell you through his son Jesus that you need to be merciful yourselves and follow the golden rule? Can you do that with a whip in your hand, Christian? Can you do that at a lynching? I read all of that in those four lines. It's turning the Christian gaze inward. Remember Christians, Phyllis Wheatley says, addressing them directly. You make arguments, your whole worldview, this premise you're defending so vigorously is based on hypocrisy. And she's delivering it not with vinegar, but with honey. Who could disagree with what she says? She's saying, yes, yes, I agree with you. Christianity is a beautiful thing. I believe it. You've convinced me. We share in this. I accept the Savior. I accept that this is better, that I'm blessed to have been shown the Savior. But wow, it looks kind of like I might be closer to the actual teachings of Christ than you are. She doesn't state that directly, but it's certainly implied. So for me, this is enough. I have her as an example, an incredible historic example coming at an incredible period in history. Name schools after her for that alone, please. And I have also this eight-line poem. I can see why people criticize it. I don't think the criticism of her is fair. She was trying to make it as a poet. And sometimes that meant writing these stately poems There was no market for other kinds of poems, especially after she was freed. My God, she had to try to live by her pen. She didn't live long, sadly. She died at 31, and she never really had great financial success as a poet. But she gave us these eight lines, which to me are sneaky smart and very poignant. They say to the slavers of the 18th century what I would like to say to them. That's pretty good for a little girl snatched from her home country, taught English, given access to Homer and Pope and Milton, and writing in a world where they put her on trial, an actual literal trial, because they didn't believe she could do what she was doing. 
Pretty good for her. Pretty good for any slave at that time. Pretty good for a woman at that time. And I'll go farther than that. It's pretty good for a person of that time and pretty good for a poet, too. Of that time, of our time, of all time. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's History of Literature. My thanks to Phyllis Wheatley for her incredible example. Schools are named after her, though, as Henry Louis Gates Jr. says, many people have no idea who she was, even those who, had, even those who attend one of her schools. She's on a postage stamp, but one from Senegal. She has not been on a stamp in the United States, which, which is probably because of the black criticism of her work, as well as general reluctance on the part of whites to credit black poets and thinkers. I mean, come on, the first poet of African descent to be published in English, and she's never been on a U.S. postage stamp? Malcolm X has been on a stamp. Ted Williams, Sun Yet Sen, Vivian Vance, you know her as Lucy's best friend, Ethel. She's been on a stamp. Elvis was on a stamp. Ayn Rand, my God. Bella Lugosi was on a stamp. And not Phyllis Wheatley. Come on, stamp makers. In fact, you know what? I shouldn't be telling you this, but I'm going to anyway. I was supposed to be on a stamp. Me, Jack Wilson, for contributions to podcasting and the cause of literature. Two million downloads. Hey, what can I say? I was honored. I was thrilled. I was eager for it to happen. It's supposed to be a secret. It was going to happen later this year, and I was looking forward to it. But now I am going to withdraw my name. I'll tell them either you get Phyllis Wheatley on a stamp or no Jack Wilson. We'll see where that gets us. They might do it anyway. Put me on a stamp against my wishes. But I'll keep fighting for Phyllis, and I'll keep fighting for you, dear listener, including some more Mike Palindrome is coming back soon. We had Edith Wharton. We've got John Steinbeck coming up. They've been on stamps, both of them. Not Mike, Edith, and John Steinbeck. A lot of authors and poets, activists and advocates. No podcasters yet, and not the first African-American poet. What a shame. I'll keep fighting for you, dear listener, and we will be back soon. In the meantime, check out our archives or head on over to patreon.com slash literature. Sign up at any level and get your bonus content. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.